Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Well, David is now king of Judah. He's residing in Hebron. And 2 Samuel chapter 2 gives us a very brief accounting of David's coronation and the, and the circumstances actually both, both odd and informative. Now a good question to ask is, why would a single tribe opt for a king over simply having a tribal prince or a tribe leader? In other words, it's customary that there is a designated head of the tribe and then the tribes are further subdivided into clans such that each clan would also have its leader who's under the authority of that tribal prince. Clan leaders would have less authority, not more, under a king. Having a king makes sense when the goal is to set a man over the top of a number of tribes. A man who is set above the several tribal princes. But that's just not the case here. I don't have a definite answer for this problem, but a reasonable speculation is that the clan leaders of Judah figured that there would be for sure a new king over the northern tribal coalition that had been headed by King Saul before his death. And that since Judah didn't want that northern king over them, that it was better to anoint their own while there was still a power vacuum up north. I think that fits pretty well with the historical circumstances. See, I think the issue was a balance of power and perhaps even a hope that their man David might even become king over all the tribes, thus giving Judah a position of preeminence over all the other tribes. Let's reread most of 2 Samuel chapter 2 to set the stage for today's lesson. We're going to start reading at verse 4. 2 Samuel chapter 2, page 335, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. Then the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They informed David that the men of Yavesh Gilead were the ones who had buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Yavesh Gilead with this message. May you be blessed by Adonai because you showed this kindness to your Lord, Saul, and buried him. Now may Adonai show kindness and truth to you, and I too will show you favor because you have done this. Be strong and be brave. Saul, your Lord, is dead, but the house of Judah have anointed me as king over them. Now Avner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Machanaim. And they'd made him king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. And Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was 40 years old when he began to rule over Israel, and he ruled for two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah for seven years and six months. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Machanaim to Gibon, Gibeon. And while Yoav the son of Zeruiah and David's servants also went out and they met together by the pool of Gibeon. 
And one group sat down on one side of the pool and the other on the other side. And Abner said to Joab, It's all right with you. Let's have our young men get up and fight it out between themselves while we watch. And Joab said, Yes, let them. So they got up and paired off. Twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, twelve of David's servants. And each one grabbed his partner by the head and drove his sword into his side so that they all fell down together. And for this reason, that place was named Hilkat Hatsurim. It is uh, in Gibeon. And the battle that day was very fierce. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten by David's servants. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there. Yoav, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet-footed as a gazelle in an open field. Asahel chased Abner, going straight for him, veering neither right nor left. And Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? Yes, it is, he answered. And Abner said to him, Turn off to your right or your left. Catch one of those young men. Take his armor. But Asahel wouldn't turn aside, and he kept following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside. Stop following me. Why should I kill you? If I did, how could I look your brother Yoav in the eye? But he still refused to turn aside. So Abner stabbed him in the groin with the back end of the spear so that the shaft protruded behind him. He fell down and died on the spot, and everyone who came to the place where Asahel lay, uh, lay dead stopped there. Now Yoav and Abishai continued in pursuit of Abner. And the sun went down when they arrived at Amah Hill across from uh, Giach along the Gibeon Desert Road. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together into a phalanx behind Abner and stood on top of the hill. And then Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword go on devouring forever? Don't you know that in the end it can only produce bitterness? How long will it be then before you tell the people to quit pursuing their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you hadn't said something, there's no doubt that the people would have kept following their brothers all night long. And then Joab sounded the shofar, and with that the people halted. And they stopped pursuing Israel, and they stopped fighting. Well, Abner and his men went through the Arabah all that night, and they crossed the Jordan, went through, uh, through all of Betron and arrived at Machanaim. And Joab returned from following Abner. And when he brought the troops together for a review, 19 of David's servants were missing, along with Asahel. But David's servants had killed 360 of Abner's men of Benjamin. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb in Bet Lechem. Then Yoav and his men marched all night so that they reached Hebron at daybreak. Now we're going to run into a lot of political intrigue over the next several chapters. So if you find that sort of thing interesting, you're just going to love our study for the next few weeks. Now the men of Judah who had appointed David as king, also inform him about uh, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had displayed such great courage by braving the presence of the Philistines to retrieve the decapitated body of King Saul from the walls of Beit Shan, and then to give him a proper burial at their city that lay on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, here we see one of the qualities of David that made him so dear to the Lord. 
It was usual and customary for a new king to purge his predecessor's accomplishments, his family, usually those who sympathized with the former king. But instead, David reached out to the people of Jabesh Gilead. And he even sought to reward them for their faithfulness to King Saul. Now recall that the people of Jabesh were not only politically aligned with Saul, but they also were closely related to him by blood, which is the foundational reason for their alliance in the first place. Now David sent messengers to the leaders of Jabesh and said that because they had shown kindness to Saul, that not only does he ask Yehovah to show them kindness, but that he, David, wishes to demonstrate kindness to them. Now this multiple use of the word kindness is in the original, original Hebrew language chesed. And chesed indicates the commission of a righteous deed that's beyond just everyday kindness. It's an act of mercy and grace that mimics the great kindness of God. But there's also present a very complicated Middle Eastern thought pattern and dialogue that's very difficult for modern Westerners to spot. The underlying implication is when a person wishing chesed on another because of that other's own chesed, um, it's because the person who was on the receiving end of the righteous deed is unable to repay it himself. So in this case here, we see that we have the citizens of Jabesh Gilead show chesed to Saul and his family, but now Saul's dead. So he can't, obviously, reciprocate with a righteous deed back towards Jabesh. Now such a thing is very intolerable to the Middle Eastern sensibilities and it has to be remedied somehow. Now we find this same concept in the book of Ruth between Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. In Ruth chapter 1 we read this, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Each of you go back to your mother's house. May Adonai show grace, show chesed to you, as you did to those who died and to me. May Adonai grant you security in the home of a new husband. And then she kissed them, and, but they began weeping aloud. Here, Naomi is telling Ruth and Orpah that even though they did chesed towards her in being good wives to her two sons and and good daughters-in-law to her, she's not able, she's not in a position to reciprocate as is expected. So she prays that the Lord will repay them. And then once they're provided with new husbands, which is the divine act of chesed towards them, then the new husbands will also repay them. The idea of repaying good deed for good deed is very Middle Eastern. So, since the deceased Saul 
And the people of Jabesh can no longer show loyalty and chesed to one another. David suggests that in addition to God giving chesed to Jabesh, he'll be the one who repays the people of Jabesh for their act of kindness and righteousness towards Saul. And that he's offering a bond of faith with them in place of the bond they had with Saul. So it's a very complicated thought pattern that's being uh, narrated here. So in verse 7, <coughs> David exhorts them into accepting this offer by saying to them, Be strong, be brave. What would strengthen bravery have to do with Jabesh accepting David's offer of repayment and kindness? Essentially it's because this repayment and kindness he's offering is all wrapped up in Jabesh establishing a covenant with David. David is asking Jabesh to break away from the northern tribal coalition and to instead become part of David's southern kingdom. David's asking that this group of men with such close ties to the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, transfer their loyalty that was under the house of Saul, all right, and that they switch and they become allied with David. Now this indeed is going to take courage because their northern, northern tribal coalition partners are going to be supremely unhappy if they do that and might even try to punish them for it because they would see this as no less than treason. Jabesh's response to David's offer isn't given. Considering what happened to Jabesh Gilead several decades earlier when the mostly northern tribes of Israel punished them severely and nearly into extinction their reluctance to jump at David's offer can be, can be understood. Well, verse 8 is a change of scenery. We move now from David's southern headquarters in Hebron to the offices of the government of the northern tribal coalition, the kingdom of Saul. Now, Abner was Saul's top military commander. And he was also either Saul's uncle or his first cousin. Traditions differ on that exact relationship. And the situation was that the north had lost their king, Saul. And there was only one son of Saul that remained alive to continue Saul's dynasty, Ishbosheth. Now, without doubt, Abner was the real power in Saul's kingdom at this moment, simply because he had the might of the army behind him. Now since Ishbosheth is a legitimate heir to the throne, Abner has little choice but to appoint him as the new king, Saul's dynastic replacement. Now Ishbosheth is not so much a name as an epithet. It's unthinkable that a man would name his son Son of Shame. So there is some disagreement on what his real given name actually was. Now, later on in the book of Kings, 
we see mention of this same fellow, but he is given the name of Eshbal. And there's good reason to think that this may indeed have been, have been his original given name. This name issue, now this may seem trivial on the surface, but, but there's good reason to spend a little time with this because it helps us to understand that ancient Hebrew mindset at this point in Israel's cultural development. Understanding these sorts of nuances is the key that unlocks many mysteries and difficulties of the Bible. Now, Eshbal means fire of Baal. It's a name that speaks of strength. At least it does if one's a pagan. But what would a Hebrew king like Saul have in his mind to assign a pagan name to his own son? Here's the answer. In reality, Baal, the word Baal, carried a dual or even triple meaning at this time. Baal meant Lord. Lord is in the sense of master from a, from a generic standpoint. And it was used in reference to a person. But it was also a term that was regularly used in reference to spiritual be beings. And when it was, it meant God. Little g, God. Thus we'll see biblical reference to the Baalim the Baals, the gods, plural, many gods. But of course, Baal was also the name, or better title, given either to the Canaanites' chief god, or at least to the chief male god, his wife being Ashtoreth, depending on which Canaanite tribe or nation one belonged to. Okay. Now this structure is very parallel to a more, our more modern day use of the word Lord. Okay. Lord can merely mean um, a person of royalty or someone who has authority. Lord can also be used to refer to God in a general sense and Christianity especially will refer to God on a more personal basis as the Lord. By the time of David, the Hebrews had borrowed the word Baal and they added it to their vocabulary. And they used it to mean Lord as in the sense of a person with authority. Okay? Thus, both in the Bible and in other ancient Jewish sources, we're going to find Hebrew names incorporating the word Baal. It didn't necessarily mean a loyalty or a dedication to the pagan god Baal. Sometimes it did. But it did reflect a very casual and unpious attitude towards the law of Moses and the Hebrew religion in general. But that's what happens to language. A word that means one thing 
is incorporated into a new language and it comes to mean something similar but not quite the same. And then after a generation or two since the word was adopted, the use of it is done without thinking. No one bothers to challenge its real meaning, even whether it's appropriate for use. Now there's no reference to Saul turning his loyalty over to a pagan god. So very likely the name of his son, Eshbal, was meant to be regal in nature. Fire of the Lord. Fire, uh, Lord meaning a human Lord. However, in later times there grew to be great sensitivity among the religious Jews to the word of the name Baal. So some of the editors of the Old Testament books determined that it was inappropriate for that word to even appear in the holy texts. So they wouldn't write or say the word Baal because it was offensive to them. Thus, when they copied those most ancient biblical scrolls and made new ones, they substituted the word Boshath, which means shame, when they ran across the word Baal. Thus, Esh-Baal became Ish-Boshath. Now, the idea of future scribes and editors adhering to a kind of religious political correctness for their time <clears throat> that caused them to substitute one word that was now deemed offensive for another that was religiously acceptable is especially noteworthy when it comes to God's formal name. YHWH, Yud Hey Vav Hey which I have elected to pronounce Yehovah, others pronounce it as Yahweh, and the word Yudhevavhei also became a very sensitive issue around the 4th century BC. And while the word was retained in written form in all the new handwritten copies of the Bible, in the margins of the scrolls, a handful of other words would be written beside it, such as Adonai, meaning Lord or Master, Hashem, meaning the name, Elohim, meaning God. And they were written down so that as the scroll was being read, read out loud, those words would replace Yudhevavhe, okay? Yahweh. Now, these sorts of variations in biblical names and places, and these substitutions of words, from one scroll or manuscript to the next. These have created all kinds of difficulties and controversies in Bible translations, as you can imagine. But most of the time, if we'll read what the ancient Hebrew sages say about it, we'll find the reason for these changes, even if the reasons are kind of dubious. Well, let's move on. For some reason, Abner decided to relocate Ishbosheth, out of the northern region of Canaan, all right, and across the Jordan River into a place called Machanaim. And it was there that he formally appointed Ishbosheth as his father's successor. Now, there's a couple of interesting aspects to what's happening here. 
One is to ask, why is it that Abner would move Ishbosheth to the other side of the river in order to appoint him the king? The reason is that it would be easier for Ishbosheth to set up his new government because there the Philistines didn't have so much control. The Philistines had a lot of control now over the land that constituted Saul's old kingdom. And a second issue to ask is, why would Abner want to crown Ishbosheth at all since apparently he knew, Abner knew, that God intended David to be the king? It's clear that Abner had more respect for Jehovah and his commands and decrees than did his former boss, King Saul. The ancient sages and rabbis have some interesting takes on this issue of what was in Abner's mind that caused him to go ahead and make Ishbosheth the new king despite his own admission that we're going to read in chapter 3, by the way, that he was well aware that David was Jehovah's choice to be king over all the Israelite tribes. Now the Jewish commentary called Bereshis Rabbah states that Abner did not deny that David was to be the king, but he only thought it wasn't yet the appointed time. Now this conviction had to do with a tradition that it evolved that the tribe of Benjamin was to supply at least two kings before David was to become king. And this belief was due to a statement made in the Torah in Genesis 35:11 that God blessed Jacob when he was returning from Mesopotamia and fleeing from Laban by saying that kings shall issue from your loins. That was taken to mean that since up to now there was no indication that any king had come from the sons already born to Jacob, that these kings would not be manifested in a, they would be manifested, these two kings it was talking about, would be manifested in a not yet born son of Jacob. Tradition says that the only son that hasn't, wasn't born yet to Jacob was Benjamin. Therefore, it was Benjamin that was supposed to produce these kings. And since the word is plural, that meant that at least two Benjamite kings had to rule before David would assume the throne. Therefore, reasons the rabbis, Abner was merely being righteous by insisting that the second Benjamite king be installed, Ishbosheth, and then only thereafter would Abner help David become king. And Abner was determined to fulfill the prophetic words of Genesis 35. Now, frankly, I'm a bit skeptical of this rabbinic reasoning. Not only does it seem that that kind of logic is less than clear, but it also appears to me that there is better, more straightforward answers that are present in the scriptures to this issue. You know, Abner was now the real and undisputed power in the north. And Ishbosheth was too young and incompetent 
to lead Israel on his own. Abner knew that by installing this weak and easily manipulated Ishbosheth as his puppet, that he could personally control Israel using Saul's sole surviving son as a mere proxy. And at the same time, he would appear to be doing the right thing in the people's eyes by continuing Saul's dynasty with his surviving son. Now, at best, Abner was manipulating the situation so that when David did assume the throne over all Israel, David would be forced into giving Abner a position of high status in the kingdom. At worst, Abner knew that God intended to make David king, but hoped that under the right circumstances, Abner could postpone David's coronation indefinitely to his own benefit. Well, verse 9 explains that Ishbosheth was made king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and uh, all of Israel. Now, Gilead was generally the tribes of Gad and Reuben that was located in the Transjordan. The Asherites are seen actually as a copyist error and probably ought to read the Gesherites. And this, by the way, makes a lot more sense. Gesher lay beyond the northern boundaries of uh, Gilead and um, they, on, the, on the east bank of the Sea of Galilee, right up, right up in this region here. And we've seen mention of the Geshurites in earlier stories. And a little later, we're going to read of David marrying a Geshurite woman and having a son with her. For whatever reason, a political alliance with Geshur was deemed to be an important thing. Now, the Jezreel is referring to the western slopes of the Gilboa Mountains, um, which lies in Issachar's territory. Ephraim basically represents the heartland of, of Israel. And it's the designation in this case actually intends to include that part of Manesha that lies on, on the west bank, that's up in this area up here. Okay? Now the idea is that the territory set aside for the house of Joseph through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Benjamin is to be a buffer territory that's sandwiched between the north and the south of, uh, of Canaan, right down here. And the term, follow this, all Israel, in this context, means all the northern tribes. But it doesn't mean the southern tribes. Now, why this kind of lengthy, strange description that gives all these specific territories and then ends with all Israel? Why not just say all Israel to begin with? Because this was a progression. See, Abner's strategy was to move Ishbosheth over to an area where he could operate freely. He could operate free of Palestine, of Philistinian uh, influence. He could operate outside of any of Judah's territorial claims. 
Okay? And he chose Mahanaim uh, in Gilead as that place. And so step by step, he would rebuild that northern coalition that Saul had constructed, but then it fell apart after his death until Ish-bosheth was finally accepted as king by all the Israelite tribes of the north. Thus it was that Ish-bosheth would only gradually be able to put together a kingdom, but it would begin with Gilead. Next in his sights would be Gesher, then Jezreel, then Ephraim and Manasseh, and then Benjamin, and then this would complete the rebuilt coalition. Now, of course, we see that David must have figured out Abner's plan. So he invited those leaders of the key city of Jabesh Gilead, right here, located in Gilead, to be David's allies in hopes of derailing Abner's plan for Ishbosheth. I told you there's a lot of political intrigue going on here. Don't let all the fancy words fool you. Okay, verses 10 and 11 work together. And they explain that Ishbosheth only reigned for 2 years over Israel, the northern tribes, but David reigned for seven and a half years over Judah. Now this presents a pretty interesting chronology problem that I'm only going to spend a moment on, but if I don't, somebody's going to ask me about it. We know that David was appointed king of Judah at about the same time that Abner appointed Ishbosheth as Saul's successor. And I believe that Judah appointing David was a counter to that move. As we're going to find out in the next chapter, Ishbosheth lost his kingdom to David. So how do we account for the five and a half years of time difference? Okay, it seems logical that David and Ishbosheth's respective reigns would have been about parallel, very nearly the same amount of time. In a nutshell, the general consensus of the rabbis is this. Notice in verse 10 that it says Ishbosheth reigned over Israel for two years. Israel at this time is what the Bible calls the confederation of northern tribes as it operates under one king. We talked earlier about how it was Abner's strategy that Ishbosheth rebuild this coalition step by step, tribe by tribe, until he's put the kingdom back together again. And thus he reigns over all Israel. Therefore, it took Ishbosheth five and a half years to gain all the territorial loyalties back. And only then did he finally rule over Israel. And once that happened, he was only on the throne for two years until David took over the northern kingdom from him. Well, in verse 12, a chance meeting between men loyal to Ishbosheth and men loyal to David occurred, and the result was going to be war. It seems that Abner had business in his family hometown of Gibeon 
in the territory of Benjamin, and he and his contingent of men stopped to refresh at a watering hole called the Pool of Gibeon. Now, since Judah's territory abutted this same place, Yoav, a nephew of David and his current commanding military officer, and then some of his brothers and some other men, also happened to arrive at this pool at the same time for the same reason. Imagine their surprise. What to do? Should they immediately engage in battle? Should one or the other withdraw? I mean, Abner, apparently rather impulsively, proposed that each side choose 12 men and they fight gladiator style in a representative battle. Sounds like fun. The idea is actually much like what happened with David and Goliath. Rather than the full armies of two enemies fighting one another, each side would send out their champion. Then those two men would fight, and the losing side would consider it a defeat of their entire army, and they'd leave the battlefield, and thus massive bloodshed was saved. Well, the Pool of Gibeon has been located, and it turns out to have been man-made. It was a large cistern carved out of rock. Here you see people descending into it. It was about 40 feet in diameter, but it was 80 feet deep. It caught the runoff from the rocks all around it, channeled it, and stored the water during flash floods. There's even a stairway carved into it. You see people descending on it in this slide. And this is so as the water level dropped, the precious liquid could still be accessed. Well, the 12 pairs of fighting men eventually erupted into the other troops from both sides engaging in battle. And the narrative seems to indicate that the reason that this turned into a full-scale battle was because there wasn't a decisive outcome from this representative warfare between these 24 men. Rather, it seems it was a draw. They all killed each other. And it turns out that Joab was there with two of his brothers, Abishai and Asahel. And it appears that as Abishai was the oldest, Joab, the chief commanding officer of David's men, was the middle child. Okay. These were all David's nephews, sons of his sister, Zeruiah. Well, David's men got the best of Abner's men, and so Abner and his company of soldiers fled. Zeruiah's three sons gave chase. But the youngest, Asahel, was a much faster runner than his brothers. The narrative describes him as being as swift as a gazelle or a deer. Well, the youthful and foolhardy Asahel sets his sights on the big prize, Abner. Not giving it a thought that this grizzled old warrior had lived so long because he was a pretty fierce and cunning fighter who didn't know how to lose. And as Asahel got closer, 
in the foot race. Abner looked over his shoulder and told the boy he really needed to rethink his intentions. The supremely confident Abner suggested that maybe it wasn't such a good idea that he'd catch him. Because Abner would easily kill him. And then this would cause even more bad blood between the military commanders of the opposing kingdoms, Yoav and Abner. But in youthful exuberance, Azahel responded by turning on the jets. As he was breathing down Abner's neck, Abner used a military trick that only the most experienced would even dare to try. Abner had sharpened the wooden handle end of his spear. And as Azahel was ready to strike, certain that he was about to end the life of this old man of legendary status, Abner unexpectedly and abruptly stopped. And without turning, he just thrust the sharpened handle of his spear backward, and Azahel literally ran into it and impaled himself upon it. Now because Asahel had raced out in front of everybody, it was going to take a little time before the rest of the group caught up. And when they did, it says they all froze in their tracks when they came across Asahel's lifeless body. The sight of their dead brother caused the adrenaline to flow and it brought a second wind to Avishai and Yoav. And so they sped off now in pursuit of Abner. Blood in their eyes, murder in their hearts. They cut up to Abner at a place called Amah Hill. No, nobody knows where this is exactly. But by then, Abner's Benjamite troops had amassed around him. They'd taken up defensive positions. And as Abner saw Joab and his men approach, he yells out to him that it really wouldn't serve either side to continue this bloodshed. Now what Abner's words were about was trying to convince Avishai and Yoav to put aside what was now a personal vendetta against Abner. This wasn't about military victory anymore. Really, there wasn't any actual need for a battle to have started at all. Since David and Ishbosheth were not at war. And so Yoav responds in verse 27 by saying, As God lives, if you hadn't said something, there's no doubt that the people would have kept following their brothers all night long. See, the meaning of these words is that it was Abner who had instigated all this back at the pool of Gibeon. If Abner hadn't rashly suggested that these 12 representatives from each side fight each other, then all these soldiers wouldn't have died. Azahel would still be alive. Abner's responsible for it all in Yoav's eyes, and especially for his younger brother's death. Well, the dynamics of the entire situation have now changed. What before the incident at the pool of Gibeon was, I don't know, a cold war of sorts between those loyal to David and those loyal to Ishbosheth. Well, now it had turned into a family blood feud. 
Abner knew this is what was going to happen. And this is why he begged Asahel, turn aside, go kill somebody else. Abner knew that otherwise he'd have to kill Asahel. The result of that was going to be an ongoing series of revenge killings between these two families. In any case, Yoab knew there'd been enough bloodshed for one day that Abner and his men were in very strong defensive positions now. So he blew the shofar as a signal to end the fighting. Now Abner also followed through. He was an honorable man. And he led his men on a trail north through the Arabah back up into his home territory. Now the Arabah is this long rift valley that runs between the Sea of Galilee extends all the way south to the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba. Today you would say it starts at the mouth of the Galilee, goes all the way down to the city of Elat all right, in, uh, in Israel. Now when both sides arrived home, they counted their dead. And the victory for David's men was overwhelming. They had lost only 20 men, including Asahel, while Abner lost 360 in some ways, you know, this is to be expected. David's men were experienced and apt fighters, having followed David for several years. These men, David's men that were there at the pool of Gibeon, were part of the 600 who had been with David for so long. But as Asahel's brothers carried his body to the family burial plot in Bethlehem, Yoav burned with desire for revenge. The truce that was arranged at Amah Hill between he and Abner applied only to kingdom business. But the matter over Asahel's death was personal. It was between he and Abner alone. This was, after all, the Middle East, where all blood feuds in badly. We'll start chapter 3 next week.